We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you independent and interesting STEM, that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, to you from Tasmania. The show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station, and I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording the Palawa and Pakana people, as we record on Lutruwita. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which you're listening. On behalf of everyone here, I pay my respects to Elders past and present. My name is Dr Kate Johnson, and I'm joined today by Dr Claire Hawkins, who's a conservation biologist working through the Bookend Trust and the University of Tasmania. Claire coordinates and is involved in lots of projects aimed at quantifying and preserving biodiversity, things like bio-blitzes and a program that's really cool called Where Where Wedgie. But before we get into that, Claire, I just want to sort of ask a little bit about your background um, and sort of what started your interest in conservation biology. Oh, goodness. Well, <laughs> uh, first off, it's really nice to be here. Thanks very much, Kate. Um, oh, conservation. Well, I was just really interested in animals when I was really small and that just grew and grew and grew. And then I guess with that interest, I became aware that there were some issues, that, that there was this thing that was happening, extinction, and that that was a, a serious problem. And that became actually uh, a sort of slight positive of that situation was it gave me a really good excuse to get really involved in zoology, which is what I wanted to do. Mm. Oh, that's very cool. And what we're going to be talking about a lot today, Claire, is something I know you're very passionate about, which is citizen science. So you've gone from um, sort of a background in conservation biology to now focusing a lot on citizen science. Can you tell us what is citizen science and what you've got you really interested in it? Well, I'm really glad you asked that <laughs> because it is many things to many different people. Mm. Um, but uh, we define citizen scientists, let's start with that, uh, in, in, in our group uh, as uh, a citizen scientist is... Uh, a professional, amateur or potential scientist uh, collaborating with lots of others. Oh God, I can't recite it quite exactly. It's on our <laughs> website, but collaborating with lots of others on a volunteer basis, often working with an expert in the particular area uh, to do research. That's cool. I, I think that I, I've heard the term citizen science before and I've never really thought very hard about what it means, but... As, as someone who's trained as a scientist, I kind of imagine projects where you have a lot of members of the public collecting data. And I guess one of the first sort of like questions I think about with that is, is the data that is collected by such a large number of people, does that introduce biases? What, what's the quality of the data like? Has there been research into that? One of the definitions that some people sort of have in the back of their mind is mm -hmm. that they think that citizen scientist, science is a brilliant way to engage people with science, um, but it n isn't necessarily effective research. Mm. And I, 
really reject that. <laughs> I think that citizen science is science. I mean, it, it can be however anybody def defines it, but that's my feeling, is that if people are going to give all this volunteer time, it's going to have to be effective. People are mostly really busy these days, unfortunately, and if they're going to donate their time, I mean, hopefully they're going to have heaps of fun, and hopefully they are going to learn a lot about science if they aren't really uh, already experts. But we're trying to do some actual... What is, what is it? We're trying to conduct an investigation. We actually are. <laughs> that's, no, that's, that's a really good point, that citizen science isn't some sort of subfield. It is science. It is, that's what it is. It's not a science communication activity. It's doing an investigation. But I guess what I was asking you is whether there has been sort of studies into citizen science data. Is the quality as good as you might get if you had a group of people who were trained in that specific area collecting the data? Sure, and there have actually been lots of studies. I mean, the main, the main takeaway is extremely unsurprising, which is that you use whatever uh, resources, uh, human or otherwise, that you have wisely. Uh, so if you're working with a whole bunch of people who don't have a bunch of skills, then you make sure that they acquire those skills or you're not relying on those skills or, uh, yeah, you train them up and then you perhaps measure those skills. But, but the studies that um, have had a look into this sort of thing about how effective people are at things like species identification or uh, recording data accurately and so forth um, show that absolutely citizen science scientists can do just as well. It's just all about designing the the... The, the survey, whatever it is, in an appropriate way. Uh, it's, it's amazing. And, of course, um, one of the huge benefits of citizen science is that you involve huge numbers of people. So that can actually be massively better than just using one or two experts. You know, the wisdom of the crowds is an incredibly powerful thing. Uh, and, of course, nowadays a lot of citizen science uh, uses... Um, a lot of uh, IT assistance, AI assistance. Um, and once you've got a crowd of people and a computer, uh, you can achieve an incredible amount. The two together are, are extremely powerful. I was lucky enough to do a Churchill Fellowship on citizen science. And sorry, what's a Churchill Fellowship, Claire? <laughs> oh, well, I, I heartily recommend anybody that's interested uh, who's in Australia to investigate. Um, I went off for a month to uh, several different countries and I visited for example one place called Citizen Science Central uh, in the States and uh, another place that had basically created a, a whole kind of um, set of guidelines on how to do citizen science. I went, went to a whole lot of institutions that were expert in running the sort of citizen science I was interested in, in carrying out um, and yeah I was really well funded to, to travel to the US, the UK and Hungary. Um, and it was just wonderful. I just arrived and said, I've got a Churchill Fellowship and I'm here to <laughs> learn more about running citizen science programs. And people very kindly gave me loads of time. Um, and I wrote a blog and a, a report on that. And it was a, a wonderful opportunity to reflect uh, on how to work with the amazing the resource, uh, resource that it is a lot of interested volunteer people um, in an effective way. I learned absolutely heaps. And I think about it, what I learned practically every day every time I'm involved in, in designing citizen science. Oh, that's, a, that's amazing. And, and who's this fellowship available to? I think, there are, I think they're available to various Commonwealth countries around 
the world, but certainly they're um, available to Australians. Um, anybody that wants to do anything um, in any subject that involves bringing back expertise back to Australia to benefit the community. Great, so stick with us for part two as we talk to Claire more about her um, projects that she's involved with in terms of citizen science in Tasmania. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Today we're talking to Dr Claire Hawkins. We're talking about Tasmania and citizens doing science to understand biodiversity. So Claire, will you tell us about some of the projects that you're involved in? Um, I know that there's a few of them. So start whichever one, start with whichever one you most want to talk about first. <laughs> oh, which one to talk <laughs> about first? I suppose the one that's really on my mind at the moment is the one that is sort of due to get into action at this time of the year. Uh, so it's the one that... Um, I first started when I started the Nature Trackers program, um, and it's called Where Where Wedgie. I didn't invent that name, and <laughs> if you don't Google the full name, you can get into trouble. Uh, but it's all about the Tasmanian wedge-tailed eagle, uh, which is an endangered uh, eagle. So they're not endangered. Uh, the wedge-tailed eagle is not endangered in other parts of Australia, uh, but here they are in quite a lot of strife. Um, it's a small population anyway because it's an island, and then they face an enormous number of threats. And prior to getting into all this stuff, I worked as a threatened species zoologist for the government, and there are you know, pretty much 200 plus threatened animals uh, in Tasmania. And I would say at least a quarter of my time was devoted to working around issues surrounding the wedge-tailed eagle in Tasmania because um, they travel so much, they, they fly so widely, they just encounter loads and loads of different threats that are created by different organisations, groups, people, companies, um, individuals who are all doing things that have nothing to do with eagles but just unfortunately um, come into conflict with them. So I was really concerned uh, about that and everyone was trying to limit their impacts of whatever they were doing but we didn't have any information whatsoever about whether the eagles were actually recovering from their threatened status mm. or whether they were continuing to go down. Right, so it's a very cool name <laughs> and a very, very cool project. So what do people actually do as part of Where Where Wedgie? Well, so that's why it's on my mind at the moment is because uh, everything kicks off in May, but in fact we get people to start thinking about it now or even earlier. Um, we have a big map of Tasmania and we've arranged the whole of Tasmania into squares of four kilometre by four kilometres and it's every third square we invite people to consider surveying. They've got to pick one of those or more if they want. Um, and so they're going to do that survey in May but it's really good if they think about that in advance so that um, uh, everyone's kind of coordinated and, and you know perhaps some of these areas are like uh, there's a landowner that you not, might need to get in touch with and, and so forth. Um, and if everyone decides where they're going to go 
then hopefully they can sort of like self-organize. You can see, oh, here's a gap where nobody's doing a survey and um, oh, already this area is really well covered, so I won't go there. So that's this idea, because what we really want to do um, is to survey all the common environmental conditions all across Tasmania. So we want to know in a kind of snapshot where people are eagle seeing eagles and where they aren't seeing eagles. Um, if, if it's a threatened species, there are going to be some places that people don't see those eagles, and we need that data. People don't always quite get that one. Uh, but otherwise, if everyone just sees eagles everywhere, we can't get a handle on like the relative numbers and how they're changing. So, so that's the idea. We get everyone to kind of book where they're going to go. Um, and then in May, uh, there's a weekend in the middle, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, any one of those days. And also at the end of May, uh, they go out to their square and they spend... 10 minutes in six different locations across the square, just scanning the sky and then recording what they see. For our listeners, if someone wants to get involved, could you tell us what they should do and do they have to have any special equipment? Um, a smartphone is good but not essential. We've got data sheets as well. Um, so they need to get onto the website, which is naturetrackers.com.au and have a look for the Wewe Wedgie project. Uh, and then that'll kind of lead them into like just reminding them what they need to do so they're not committing to something that, oh, you know, on the day they suddenly discover they have to do all this stuff. <laughs> but just getting an idea about what, what you need to do and then they book their square um, and then they'll get an email just reminding them what they need to do. Um, and then on the day, yeah, it's really helpful if you get the app. We've got an app um, to record the data. And it's good if they've had a bit of a go of that uh, beforehand and they've had a bit of a look where they're going to go so they don't end up on a mysterious forestry trail surrounded by logs all across the road. Uh, but all being well, if they've planned it and everything, they just, yeah, just pop out there. And we also really encourage people to plan the food and the fun <laughs> and uh, what, what else they're going to do on the day so that it's just a really fun day. Um, and if they don't see any eagles and remember their threatened species, and, and also we also look out for other raptors as well. Uh, so if they, if they still don't see anything, they've still had a really awesome day and they know they've contributed to a really important uh, long-term study about how the numbers are changing from year to year to year. And it is so important to have these sorts of long-term studies, right? Because instead of just a snapshot of one, one moment in time, you can see, like you were saying, how, a, how an eagle population is responding to, to recovery sense or in a, in a negative sense to, to something popping up and really affecting their distribution. Yes, indeed. If you just do it once, that, that it's just an index we get from that. It's like a snapshot of what people saw in those particular squares. Mm. Um, but if everyone does it again and again, year on year on year, then we're going to see if they're stable or if there's a decline uh, or if there's an increase. Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. And I hope that um, anyone listening who who's in Tassie and wants to get involved will will head over and check out nature trackers so so that is something i wanted to touch on too because we've got jim lovell's episode coming up too and i know he's part of the nature trackers program and that's just where where wedgie sort of sits in the nature trackers program but what what else does nature trackers do what is nature trackers <laughs> yeah so nature trackers is all about this long-term monitoring and um when i went off uh to um do my churchill fellowship I had uh, a real interest in finding out generally how to do long-term monitoring through, uh, with the aid of citizen scientists. So I had, I had a few species in mind, and one was the wedge-tailed eagle because it had just taken up so much of my time as a threatened species zoologist. And another one uh, was a whole bunch of these incredible um, species, the burrowing crayfish. We've got, um, I think it's pretty much 
Well, we've got well over 30 species of freshwater crayfish in Tassie. And, well, certainly there's 15 that are real super specialist burrowers that you could just find like in a paddock or a forest or something. They're quite isolated from the water, but they just bury, uh, burrow into the water table or they might even create a kind of cistern uh, that gathers rainwater. They're really, really independent from water, but they're very vulnerable to um, certain threats. Um, so there's a species up uh, in the middle sort of, central north of Tasmania called the central north burrowing crayfish and um, people have built pretty much everywhere or, or, or had agriculture pretty much everywhere except the kind of really wet boggy areas but now there's a bit more pressure on those wet bog boggy areas and people are quite keen to build on them to drain mm. them and so forth uh, or to put cattle on them which really squishes the area um, and that's a huge threat for these species and it's that classic thing with threatened species where people feel um, if they're in that area, they feel, oh, they're everywhere. You know, <laughs> so if you if you're trying to choose somewhere that you want to build a house at the moment, everywhere you look, it feels like there's these burrowing crayfish. Mm. But actually, this particular species, if you smushed all of the area where they're, they're known together, it would be less than one square kilometer in the entire world. Wow, that's crazy. So does Nature Trackers sort of focus on these animals that really need need to be monitored because they're in decline is that is this the sort of main focus of nature trackers yes absolutely so uh, i was initially thinking that we'd do something a bit like where where wedgie for this burrowing crayfish that we'd pop in every year and we'd just do this massive survey and uh, then we'd compare how things were going each year and maybe one day we will do that that's definitely the approach of nature trackers overall it's like just monitor how things are going year on year on year um, with these little central north burrowing crayfish, it's really complicated because they all live on, on um, private land. Mm. So each time you have to sort of, um, would you mind if I come and have a look on your land? Uh, but we are trying to map them and to try and get an idea about how that might be changing over time. Um, and there's a wonderful app uh, called iNaturalist, which, which is uh, international. It's not, it's not set up by us, but I'm wildly supportive. Um, and that's a really lovely way that people can map where they've seen burrow. Uh, we still have to find out which species which but it's a really really good start and it gets people thinking about where these species are that's very cool and uh, something I want to ask you about in the last section of our of our episode today too is bio blitzes which is I know are something that you use iNaturalist for as well so stay with us for part three as we talk to Claire about bio blitzes You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Dr. Kate Johnson, and today we're joined for the last part of the episode coming to you from Rainy Biological Sciences by Dr. Claire Hawkins. So, Claire, what is a bioblitz, and how can you use iNaturalist that we just talked about for it, and why do they matter? Just tell us about bioblitzes. Oh, bioblitzes are just brilliant. <laughs> They're the most positive thing you could possibly imagine. That The concept is... Uh, that you have uh, an agreed, defined area. Um, it might be, in our case, uh, what we typically do is a council reserve, but it could be a much larger area, like the Bob Brown Foundation does the whole of the tar kind. Mm. Um, in the UK, it's often village greens, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and basically, so there's a defined area and there's also a defined time period. Um, for our case, it's 30 hours, so it goes all through the night as well, which is kind of 
adds a whole extra dimension of excitement. Um, and the question is, how many species can we find during that defined period of time in this area? Ah, oh, so cool. And I've been involved in a couple of bioblitzes. I think actually one that you ran too. I know that you run a series called the Extinction Matters Bioblitzes. So, so what, what are they trying to get at? Well, it was the first kind of citizen science-y thing I, I did, actually. And I, my interest was particularly to bust down all those silos between all these people who are basically organisations who are all trying to do the same thing. But often we just sit in our little, not necessarily ivory towers, but uh, whatever. <laughs> We're just a little bit divided. And um, I thought, what a lovely, positive way to bring us all together, bring the community together. Um, the The first one we did, 2016, so that was... Um, the 80th year of, well, it was 80 years since the last known thylacine died. Uh, mm -hmm. And on the 7th of September, that, that's the, the day it died and it's Threatened Species Day. And so we called it Extinction Matters because we just wanted to get people thinking a little bit about threatened species in particular. Um, often people think that threatened species are really far away in a rainforest or something, but actually it's amazing how many you might record in your local backyard, council reserve or whatever. Um, and also just, just show people what an incredible diversity there can be just in your backyard. And uh, it really succeeded in that. I mean, just in that period, even in a, in a little council reserve that might be a bit weedy and not apparently in the best of conditions and maybe dogs going all over it, you still can get literally hundreds of species recorded in that period yeah they're just they're amazing things to be a part of and i think it really also you know as someone who is a biologist you know you think that i'd be quite aware of the world around me but you don't often stop sort of in a in a defined space and really look at what's there and like you say it's amazing there are so just so many species of plants and insects and animals that we just don't really pay attention to and i think it's it's really good to sort of just get that idea of how alive the world is around you as well yeah and we've been we each time we borrow microscopes and we have people like you lots of lots of people who are experts in particular groups of plants and animals and fungi and we even had a tardigrade expert at one stage and young and old just people interacting it's just a lovely thing when you meet somebody who's super expert in something mm -hmm. um and they yeah somebody like peter mcquillan this wonderful insect ecologist <laughs> and literally you find you know one insect and he just can't help himself he'll talk for 10 minutes about <laughs> the whole history of the discovery of this thing and what it does and it just captivates everyone mm -hmm. uh, i was lucky enough during my churchill actually to meet the inventor of the bioblitz um oh, wow. Sam Drogi and he is uh, just an incredible guy but his sort of concept was kind of I'm, I'm probably misquoting him a bit but it was something like um, bring good coffee and then that will attract scientists <laughs> and then that will attract the community and the media and then you'll get a whole lot of information on a really little known council reserve <laughs> baiting scientists with coffee. I love that that's how BioBlitz has started. That's too good. And Claire, to finish off the episode, I'm just imagining people listening in, maybe younger people too, thinking, oh my God, what an amazing career that, that Claire has. And I wonder if you have advice for people who, um, you know, maybe like you as, as younger people, really interested in animals, are hearing all this and thinking, I'd love a career like that. What's, what's your advice to them? 
Um, I should just pop in before I get lost in that, that uh, we have another Bioblitz coming up and it's in October 20th, 21st um, and it's near Devonport. It's um, at Kelsey Tier. So um, keep an eye out for that. We've got a Facebook page. We've got a, a website that's being updated. But anyway, it'll be all over social media and so forth soon. Advice for people that really want to get into conservation. I think, I think you can get into it in lots and lots of different ways. So if you have skills in communication or business or art, there are ways to make an incredible difference for, for conservation. And a lot of those people who might be volunteers with, with um, nature trackers uh, are contributing in wonderful ways. We have a, an education um, side of things, which is so teachers are doing an amazing job with all of these, all of these different lines to making a, a difference for conservation. But if you're if you're super into animals <laughs> or plants, um, then absolutely. I mean. I, it's an inc incredibly enjoyable area to get into. Um, studying them only gets you so far, but it's really, really helpful to know, I mean, what these species want. Um, it can be really, really hard to find the funds, but mm -hmm. uh, if you have the inspiration and the passion, um, you know, they're, they're there. Uh, don't take it lightly as something you're going to um, just find really quickly uh, I, I would say I've struggled uh, plenty of times and I'd also say that I've been burnt out a few times because mm -hmm. you kind of like oh I can fix all this and of course you can't it's a massive massive job and so I think if you feel really passionately about conservation I think everyone knows this it's the same with climate change you've got to really really look after yourself as well because I think probably that's the case for anything where you're trying to make a big difference to a really big problem mm -hmm. um, but I mean the fact is that the kind of work that I've been involved with, um, if I can pull myself away from all the organisation and the computing, I mean, it's all about nature, getting outside, uh, taking time to really look at it and understand it. And in that regard, it's incredibly rewarding. I think there's some really good points, Claire. And I think, yeah, that's, that's something we really need to acknowledge that when we're dealing with these really issues that are really important to us and also that we can't solve as individuals that you've got to sort of make sure that you're keeping your expectations <laughs> you know realistic and yeah just know when you need to take a step away and I, I also think that citizen science is such an awesome way to to sort of go well I can't do this as an individual like it, one person can't solve these things but as as a group of humans who are all interested in this no matter our background we can all come together, we can band together and we can, you know, start to try and get the baseline information at the very least to, to, to help these species. And I think that's awesome. And it was such a pleasure to have you on the show. So thank you for listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-related content and we hope you enjoyed the show. You can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz across our social media or visiting our website at thatscience.org. You should also check out Where Where Wedgie and nature trackers and the bio blitzers and get involved if you're at all interested. I can attest to them being a lot of fun. My name is Dr. Kate Johnson and I'd like to thank today's guest, Dr. Claire Hawkins. Catch you next time. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. 
Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.